members here, and it's my privilege to bring the next in our, in our series that we've been looking at on Sunday evenings at Church of Prayer on what is Jesus doing now. Uh, so if you've got your Bible, if you turn to Ephesians chapter 4, we'll find out the next thing that Jesus is doing now. If you've got one of the Pew Bibles, it's page 1175. give you a little clue about what we're going to look at. The, the title is, or the answer to the question, what is Jesus doing now, is giving. So be observant as you uh, read through the passage with me. So we're going to read Ephesians 4 and verses 7 to 16. Verse 7, Ephesians 4. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And that's God's word. If you were paying close attention to the reading, you'll have found three specific references to giving, give, or, or gifts. And what we're going to do very quickly tonight is look at each of those in turn, think about them for a few moments, and then at the end try and identify some things that we can take away with us this evening, uh, some things that we can pray about this evening. Uh, but when tomorrow morning comes, and it's the Monday blues, uh, I'm on holiday tomorrow, so it's no Monday blues for me, uh, but when the Monday blues come, that you can actually look back Sunday evening and find something that you can think about and recognize that there is something indeed not to be blue about. So first of all, verse 7, we see that grace has been given. Who's it been given by? Jesus. So Jesus gives grace. If you're familiar with the book of the, uh, the letter to the Ephesians, you'll know that it splits into two very neat parts. The first three chapters are, are quite deep theological utterances that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. But then the the last three chapters are much more of a practical application and a much greater day-to-day uh, -day understanding of what those theological uh, thoughts should look like in practice. So the giving of grace, as we read here in verse 7, is one of those links at the early part of chapter 4 back to what has been said previously. But it also looks forward to what appears in the rest of the chapter. 
But we can't understand the concept of Jesus giving grace, as it's discussed here, without thinking why grace has been given in the first place. And we do need to refer back to the first part of the letter for that. As early as verse 6 of the opening chapter, Paul tells the Ephesians, and by inference us, that God the Father has given grace by means of his Son, Jesus Christ. In verse 7 of chapter 1, Paul goes on to explain that the riches of God's grace have been lavished on the Ephesians. And then he goes on to describe those riches in some detail. So if at times you wonder whether God really does love you, times get tough, read Ephesians chapter 1. It's a great way of putting things in perspective because God does indeed send showers of blessings on his people. But there's a reason why Paul sets up his letter by looking at Jesus giving grace. And, and we can see more of that in chapter 2. Some of the words that are described are quite stark. Verse 1 of chapter 2, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Verse 5 of chapter 2, we were dead in transgressions. So simply put, we were dead. We were hopeless in a natural state. As Paul told us last Sunday morning, in all the time that he's been conducting funerals, he's never seen a corpse jump up in front of him and say, I'm not dead, I'm alive. I don't think any of us have been to a funeral like that, otherwise I'm sure we would have read about it. What does dead mean? It means no thoughts, it means no words, it means no actions. Dead means dead. But you've got to remember that Paul here is speaking in spiritual terms, not in physical terms. So what he's saying is that spiritually, there cannot be any life where there's death, obviously. But that is in spiritual terms. Mankind without grace that's been given by Jesus means that we've just become literally dead men walking. Anyone who is spiritually dead has no hope. Why? Because he or she can do nothing. Yet, in the middle of this hopelessness, grace arrives on the scene. Verse 4 and 5 of chapter 2, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. I don't know what's going on inside everyone's heart and mind this evening, but if you've never repented of your sin, if you've never turned away from that sin and said sorry for all of it, if you've never believed that Jesus Christ is your only hope because he died as your replacement, as a punishment for your sin, you're spiritually dead. But, and this is the great good news that we've got for tonight, is that God, who is rich in mercy, is giving you an opportunity to receive the gift of grace that only his son offers. But this again takes us back to chapter 1. As soon as you receive the free gift of grace, then all those blessings that Paul describes in chapter 1 are lavished on you. But this is only the context within chapter 4 of Jesus as being the giver of grace. The grace that each of us needs for repentance and faith is only the entry point for being full beneficiaries of all the grace that our Lord Jesus Christ can give us. Look again at verse 7. It says, But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. 
Now, obviously, this must mean that not all recipients are going to receive the same amount of grace. But we all receive saving grace, so there must be something that comes beyond that. So if we receive grace, but some get more grace because Christ is apportioned that, that way, what then does that look like? Well, I think verse 8 helps us give the answer. The last three words of verse 8 say, gifts to men. So Jesus gave gifts to men. Now this verse is taken from Psalm 68, which is a psalm of triumph. And it's very militaristic in its language. It talks about great victories that have been won. It talks about captives being released. It talks about the widowed, the orphaned, and the lonely receiving all the things that they had been lacking. It talks about the plunder of battle after the enemy has been scattered. And at the end of a battle or at the end of war, there are, there are two options. First of all, soldiers of a victorious army can run rampage and basically take whatever they see fit as they pass through the land. People, possessions are open season. Or alternatively, the commander of the army can distribute the plunder to all the army in an orderly manner, no matter what's been done. The first of those options just leads to chaos. We don't need to think too far back in history to see how victorious armies cause mayhem when they run unchecked through the, the enemy. There are abuses of power, there's anarchy. But the second of those, where there is a controlled distribution of the spoils, means that everyone who's been on the winning side receives something. So the warrior on the front line who's been in the heat of the battle gets something. But so too does the intelligence officer who's sitting in a mobile tent plotting strategy. Now the implication of this verse is the second outcome because he gave gifts to men. It's not anarchy. It's not chaos. It's an orderly distribution of gifts. And Jesus gives gifts to men. Now, this is where Christians really start to get uptight and worry. Uh, the sorts of things that I suspect will run through some of your minds are, oh, what are my gifts? Uh, how do I use my gifts? Uh, what if I lose them? Etc. 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 To be honest, there's actually no point lying awake at night thinking what your gift is. Can I offer an alternative suggestion? Can you just not roll your sleeves up? and get on with ministry that needs to be done. Verse 12 that we've read says that there are works of service to be carried out by the saints. That's not special people. That's God's people. If you're one of God's people, if you're a true Christian, that's you. You've got those works of service to do. So can I suggest that you just get on with that? But let's put it in context. If we consider the military analogy a little bit further. There is no army that would ever let the inexperienced rookie loosen the front line, particularly with expensive machinery. It would be carnage. So what does that new recruit have to do? Well, they go through extensive training drills so that they know how to use their equipment. They go through the endless marching on the parade ground that instills discipline that's required for battle. They perhaps have to serve some time with the quartermaster or in the mess, performing those mundane tasks that no one wants to do. They have to go through the uh, difficult physical testing that determines 
if the body is ready for battle. And the church is not really any different. So if you're a new Christian, if you're a young Christian, if you're perhaps an under-trained Christian, this is what you have to do. You go through the mundane, you go through the banal, and for the teenagers here, yes, you go through the boring, as it equips you for his battle. But what it does, it allows you to develop the gifts that you have been given. But what else does it say? The third thing is in verse 11. It says that it was he who gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now here the letter starts to get quite specific and it starts to talk about individual gifts. But this is not a comprehensive list because Paul in other letters to Romans and Corinthians does list other things. But there is a very specific aspect to these gifts that are here. And that is that they have an a responsibility in the instruction of others. Now, we're not going to discuss the gifts in detail, and we don't have time for that, but let's remember who gave them. It's Jesus who gives them. He's the one who gives the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. So in our last couple of minutes, let's think, why are those gifts given to only a few individuals? Well, I think the solution to that is found in the rest of what we read from verses 12 to 16. We've already touched in 12 about the works of service that are there. But the recipients of those particular gifts, those gifts that have an element of instruction or teaching of others, have a responsibility to the body of Christ. If there's anyone here who ever wants to be a pastor, then look at the expectation of these verses. And the expectation is, to prepare God's people for works of service. Now the responsibility for your preparation for your works of service, my preparation for my works of service, our engagement in the battle that lies around us, does lie with those who are responsible for teaching and leading us. Now, that does not mean that they do everything. It doesn't say that. It says they prepared the rest of us for works of service. So do you ever have a gripe with those who teach or pastor? No one ever has a gripe with those who teach or pastor. And I know that. Uh, if your gripe is along the lines of, I don't like the color of your socks, can you have a rethink about what your gripe might be? However, if your gripe is, I don't think that you're equipping me for works of service, then I think you've hit the target in terms of your expectations of your pastors and teachers of your expectations for what is the most important, relevant, and dare I say, dangerous question that you could give to them. Verses 12 to 16 go through a long list of reasons why the work of preparing us for works of service is important. We don't have time to dig into them, but here is a very brief summary in my own words. There's a bad world around us, and there are going to be people who will try to deflect us from our task by introducing false teaching. So instead, let us all concentrate on what is truth so that we can understand what God the Father wants us to be in Christ. And let's go further than that. Let us speak that same truth to each other with the greatest love and with the greatest respect. Why is that? Because we're all part of the one body. We're one body that is joined to the great giver of gifts, Jesus Christ, on whom we depend for all things. 
So three things to take away. We can pray about for, for these in a moment, but take these away and think about it tomorrow morning. One, be thankful for the gifts that you have received. One B, be thankful for the gifts that others have received. And possibly one C, uh, be thankful that you haven't been given those gifts. Two, speak the truth to each other in love. Three, build each other up. Why? Simply because Jesus is the great giver who wants us to grow up in unity into him. Let's turn to prayer. Um, and let's pray uh, 